podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. If you are listening to this podcast, you may also enjoy my other show, Red Inca. It's a podcast about stories and issues in cricket, told by the experts who have followed it or the people who've lived them. We've had Dan Norcross talking about cricket commentary, Wright Thompson on his Sachin Tendulkar piece, and a bunch of cricketers like Andrew Balburnie, Tamal Mill, Sean Masood, and Alex Hartley. It's a weekly podcast with a different theme for every show. Bert Sutcliffe's head was covered in blood when the ninth New Zealand wicket fell. Sutcliffe started leaving the field, assuming the innings was over. No one expected the number 11 to walk out. When he did, the crowd was stunned into silence. The New Zealanders wept as their man walked out there. The South Africans weren't handling it much better. Sutcliffe walked up to the tailender, put his arm around him, and he said, Come on, son. This is no place for you. Let's swing the bat at the ball and get out of here. Bob Blair was the batsman, and it was the same day he found out that his fiance had died in a train crash. There was a young man. He, uh, he was the first one down there. And when he found that the bridge had gone, he rushed up onto the line with his torch. He had a torch, and he rushed onto the line and waved it. They pretty hard on a dark night. On a dark night. They would most likely be having uh, perhaps their supper or something. Yes. See, going down there and travelling at a high speed. It's a long straight run, isn't it? A long straight run, yes. Welcome to Double Century. This week we look at one of the most incredible moments in New Zealand cricket, where two men batted on when neither should have been on the field. And also, while knowing that it wouldn't save the match for them. In the background of all of this was a train crash where 151 New Zealanders had died. This is the story of Bert Sutcliffe, Bob Blair and the Tangiwai disaster. For the tourist openers, Bert Sutcliffe and Verdar Scott treat the English bowlers, including Bailey, with ease and go all out on the attack. Left-hander Sutcliffe, hailed in New Zealand as one of the great, lives up to his reputation after weeks of form and with a glorious hit off Derby's Cliff Gladwin, reaches his half-century in 65 minutes. Skipper Hadley, too, makes light of the bowling and hits up a useful 43. Only bowler to shine is Eric Hollies. The Warwickshire man here nabs Mervyn Wallace, caught by Evans for two. New Zealand were, possibly, the worst new test team cricket has ever had. The talisman, John R. Reid, once said, I told a lot of lies. We'd gather as a team and naturally I'd try to be as positive as possible. I tried to encourage our fellows to explain that everyone is human and that they all get nervous, had failures. But at the back of your mind, there was this knowledge that, all things being equal, we were in for a rough time. It took them 45 tests to win their first and 39 years to win a series. Australia didn't consider them a real test nation. And while they had some quality cricketers like John R. Reid, they were at best a battling team. Mostly far, far worse than that. England refused to give them proper test matches, instead giving them only three days. Then Bert Sutcliffe came along. In the 1949 series, only his second, he scored 32, 82, 57, 9, 101, 88 and 54. It may not sound like a mountain of runs, but he batted a lot of time and New Zealand didn't lose a single test in that series. Three draws, inspired by Sutcliffe's stalling. After that, England changed how many days New Zealand's test matches lasted. That's some impact. Sutcliffe was classical, a master of all shots. His off-drives are still whispered about. New Zealand batsmen had been pretty or gritty before, but they'd never been both. No New Zealand cricketer had really made a mark on test cricket yet. 
The entire country hadn't. And after 10 tests, Suckless was averaging over 50, and he was already the leading run scorer in New Zealand history. New Zealand had a player. South Africa take the field on the opening day of the first test at Johannesburg. England's opening pair are Peter Richardson and Trevor Bailey. Neil Adcock to Bailey, who hits him for three. But there aren't many of those. The bowling is fast and accurate, and it takes an hour for England's openers to reach 20. With a score at 28, Bailey is caught by weight at the wicket after edging a leg ball from Heine. That takes 97 minutes, and the crowd are hoping for a bit more excitement when Dennis Compton comes in as number three. South Africa had been New Zealand half a century earlier, struggling for players, clutching their leg spinners for a win, and mostly being substandard. In the 1920s, they didn't win a test series and they couldn't even afford to run their first-class system every year. But things were starting to change, and after World War II, they found Neil Adcock. Australia's Colin McDonald once said of him, tell this bastard I've got a family to go home to. Adcock was tall, and this was at a time before that became normal for bowlers. He was fast, but he also had a bizarre action that others found hard to handle, and he had this flock of hair that would stand up when he bowled. It often stood up more than the batsman who faced him. Doug Insole, the England player, once said, Colin Cowdery was to open the innings, but on the boat on the way over, he said he didn't want to. He didn't think his technique was up to coping with Adcock and Hayne. Adcock was as good as he was vicious, and he also became South Africa's first bowler to take 100 test wickets. Sutcliffe and Adcock would meet at a test in Alice Park in Johannesburg over Christmas in 1953. On Christmas Eve, South Africa battled to get a decent score on the board. They got to 259 for 8, which may not sound like a lot of runs, but that was New Zealand's fourth test match against South Africa that year. They had played two at home and now these two away, and in that time they had never crossed 250. They didn't have to worry about the next day, as it was Christmas, and that was a rest day in that match. At 3pm on Christmas Eve, the Wellington to Auckland Express train took off with 285 passengers. It was running completely normal when it arrived at the bridge to cross the River Wanganui. The train drivers were not aware that a mudslide had affected the tracks. There was a warning, but they missed it, so they kept going forward. Unfortunately, the bridge that they had to pass on had lost one of its pillars. It was only at the last moment that the train crew realised something was wrong, and they used the emergency brake. A local foreman had also tried sandbags to slow it all down, but the train went into the river. They call it the Tangiwai disaster, and it's still the worst rail accident in the history of New Zealand. 151 people died. Among them was Nerissa Love, Bob Blair's fiance. He's a young, fast bowler, that's all. It is my privilege to announce the following squad to represent New Zealand in the forthcoming tour of South Africa and Australia. R.W. Blair. Just don't forget me, okay? Stop the train! Stop it! Always been hit. Stop the fucking train! Blair was only 21 years old, and like many New Zealand cricketers since, he showed some talent and was probably picked before he was ready. 
He would play 19 tests and average 35 in them. Solid enough for a team like that, especially as he lost 13 of them. He once toured England and took 49 wickets in the first-class summer, averaging 23. He took 537 wickets at 18 in his first-class career, and even allowing for the state of first-class cricket in New Zealand at that time, that's one hell of a record. When Blair heard the news of his fiancée, he never left the hotel to head down to the ground for the second day of play. For Boxing Day, New Zealand dismissed South Africa's tail quite quickly, but then found themselves on a lightning-fast track. Jeff Rabone and Murray Chappell were hit early on as people said the ball was going almost vertical. Sutcliffe faced two balls before receiving an adcock bouncer. He tried to hook the ball, but it struck him around the ear and he lost consciousness. His blood went out on the wicket. People at the ground talked about the sound that ball made on Sutcliffe's head for years afterwards. Sutcliffe came to and refused a stretcher. He shook hands with the South African captain and was taken to hospital. Adcock hit Reed when he came out to bat. Then he smashed one right above the heart of Laurie Miller, who started coughing up blood. New Zealand had as many men batting at the crease as they did in hospital getting x-rays. While at the hospital, a doctor poked at the lump on Sutcliffe's head. Sutcliffe fell down with a crash, unconscious. There was no way he could resume batting anytime soon, let alone that day. Miller refused to listen to the doctor as well and went back to the ground and batted on. But Miller was dismissed with New Zealand still behind the follow-on. There was little hope for New Zealand at this point, but Sutcliffe did come back. X-rays had revealed no fracture, and the doctor suggested Sutcliffe stay under observation for a few days. But he didn't want to. The image of Sutcliffe going back out to bat at Alice Park looks more like a war photo than one for cricket. His head is covered in a bandage. There's a huge lump on the back of his neck, and he was still bleeding. This is an extract from The Last Everyday Hero, which is a book written by Richard Book on Sutcliffe's life. Rabone and a couple of first aid men raced into the middle to readjust the Kiwi's bandages, which had been weeping blood during the exchanges. They eventually decided to tape a white towel around his head. Later, Sutcliffe would admit, I must confess I was fortified to some extent by a generous helping of Scotland's chief product, and I don't mean porridge. Sutcliffe was a bit drunk, Clearly had concussion and couldn't stop bleeding and he was about to face Adcock again. He could have died, but instead he took him on. And it wasn't just Adcock, he smashed the great Hugh Tayfield as well. His team wasn't safe and now neither was any South African bowler. It was a bloody counter-attack. Sutcliffe went to pass the follow-on with a six. And when the ninth wicket fell, Sutcliffe was left alone and he and the South Africans started making their way off the ground. No one believed that Blair would walk out. But there was Blair at number 11. He entered the ground while the flags behind him were at half-mast. The ground went silent as he walked on, and Sutcliffe did put his arm around him and told him to swing. But it was Sutcliffe who kept going. He was facing Hugh Tayfield, who has the ninth lowest economy rate of any bowler over 100 tennis wickets, and he launched him. One of his sixes went into the non-European section of the ground, and legend has it that it got many cheers from the locals who often supported the opposition over their whites-only team. After getting a single, Blair was on strike, and he launched at Tayfield as well. They took 25 runs off him in that over, a world record at the time. The drunk, bleeding concussion victim and the heartbroken kid. Neither should have been out there. It was too dangerous, and they couldn't have been thinking straight. But on the worst day of Blair's life, and the most impactful one of Sutcliffe's, they put on 33 runs. Bert Sutcliffe was never the same player after that.
Teams would bowl short to him over and over, and he would flinch. He'd averaged 36 from then on in. Still amazing for a New Zealand batsman of that time, but nothing compared to what people thought he could have done. Sutcliffe is still a hero to New Zealand cricket, but not the way he should have been. He later admitted that he never recovered from that blow, and this incredible cricketer would finish his entire career without ever being in a winning 11. Not a single one. And yet, even after all that flinching, he kept batting. Bob Blair was obviously haunted by the day even more. His career was defined by that moment, and so was his life. But I want you to think about all the times you have seen New Zealand teams fight against better lineups, richer nations, teams with so many more players to choose from. So all those times you've seen New Zealand cricketers trying hard, battling away, getting the most out of themselves, and coming together as a team, remember Sutcliffe and Blair. This is where it started, when two men shouldn't have been batting, but they did anyway. New Zealand cricketers fight, and they always have. This was a short partnership, but one that lives on in every New Zealand rear guard ever since. Double Century is a podcast based on my book, Test Cricket, The Unauthorised Biography. It is written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the entire thing exist, and our fact-checkers are Bertie Moores and Abhishek Mukherjee. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so please help out there if you can. The links are in the show notes, thanks to everyone who already does. This is our first season, and there will be 11 episodes in all, so please help share and review to get this podcast out there. Thank you for listening. Podcast Network.